We are spending time in the Gospel of Luke, letting its truths challenge our thinking, inform our hearts, reorient our minds. Um, each of the last two weeks, I've called your attention to one of the Gospel's most significant themes. God's salvation extends beyond any of the artificial boundaries that we set for it. It reaches to people who are outside the, the scope of traditional religion. God's love and grace extend to the least, to the last, to the lost. In first century Israel, the least, the last, and the lost comprised a pretty large segment of society, as it does today. Children, for example, were among the least. In our culture, children, we build our lives around children. In their culture, that was not the case at all. They were among the least. So were the poor. So were the irreligious. So were women. Nearly all women were part of that group. So were tax collectors, foreigners, Gentiles, lepers. Luke repeatedly shows us how the good news of God's salvation was extended to all of these people. That's part of a bigger picture in the Gospel of Luke that we need to see. In Luke's vision of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation extends to individuals. God cares about persons, not just nations. About people, not just religions. He was never, remember, the God of Judaism. He was and is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Luke wants us to remember that God cares about individuals, including individuals that most people forget. Last week we looked at how Luke's Gospel stresses God's purpose in the world, but it's a mistake to think of that purpose as manifesting itself primarily in the great movements of history and shaping nations and empires. God's unstoppable purpose is at work in individuals and in people like you and me. In you and me. God has a purpose for the movie star, yes, but also for the elderly widow, the Wall Street trader and the Walmart cashier, the presidential candidate and the penitentiary inmate. And his purpose can't be stopped. Because Luke grasped the reality that God cares about individuals, he filled his gospel with stories about them. Often people not mentioned in any of the other gospels for example, he alone tells us about Zechariah and Elizabeth. He describes Zacchaeus, tells us about Cleopas and his unnamed friend, takes us right into the home of Martha and Mary. And he loves to relate the stories that Jesus told that feature individuals, especially, as Leon Morris points out, the people society ignored. Women, Luke talks more about women than any of the other Gospels by far. Women, children, the poor, and the disreputable. In our text today, we find two people that we don't meet in any of the other Gospels. One is a respectable Pharisee named Simon. The other, a woman no one called respectable, but was probably called lots of other things, and who remains unnamed. Some people believe that she was Mary Magdalene, but I think that's a conflation of other texts, and the Bible doesn't say that. And there's good reason to believe that that's not the case. Let's read this story. It's found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. <clears throat> now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
When a woman who lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus went to dinner with a Pharisee. No doubt, an upstanding man. We often think of Pharisees as being hypocritical. Oh, they're all terrible. Scripture doesn't really present it that way. Um, the Pharisees were among the most respected people living in Israel. And no doubt he was an upstanding guy, had the respect of everyone in the community. Interestingly, the very last time Luke showed us Jesus going out to dinner with someone, he was going to dinner with a party of tax collectors, the people who got no respect and, and whom everyone in the community hated. And both times, do you know why he went? Because he was asked. What does that say about Jesus? Now remember, in first century Israel, eating with someone has social implications that it doesn't have in 21st century America. To invite someone to dinner or to accept an invitation to dinner was to place that other person on the same footing as you. It was to express acceptance. When Jesus went to the tax collector's party, he put himself on a level with them. He expressed acceptance of them. And do you remember the criticism he got for it? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They just couldn't understand it. It's worth noting that when Jesus accepted a dinner invitation from a Pharisee, he was expressing acceptance of him, too. So let me just ask a question. Does your life reflect that welcoming spirit? Do you have friends who cross social and economic and even religious lines? Jesus did. Our example. The phrase the NIV translates as reclined at table is significant. It tells us that this was a formal dinner. There would be a guest list. All the best and brightest would be present. And a seating order. At formal dinners, didn't, people didn't sit 
on a chair like we do with their knees under a table. They reclined on something like a low settee with their legs extended along the side of the table. And then they propped themselves up with their left elbow and they ate with their right hands. No utensils. Like formal dinners in our culture, there was a guest list and there was a seating order, a very specific seating order. But unlike formal dinners in our culture, people not on the guest list could still come as spectators. They could watch, they could listen to the conversation, hear what the respected rabbi had to say. That's why the sinful woman of verse 37 got into this affair. The Greek of verse 37 says simply, there was a woman in the city, a sinner. That's probably a way of saying she was a prostitute. As the scholar Joel Green puts it, in what amounts to a kind of ascending order of horror, of disgrace, this characterization marks her as a prostitute by vocation, a whore by social status, contagious in her impurity, and probably one who fraternizes with Gentiles. That's the worst thing, for economic purposes. That places her firmly among the least, the last, and the lost. We have no way of knowing how she ended up in that lifestyle. She may have been a freed slave whose master couldn't afford to keep her. She may have been sold into prostitution as a girl by impoverished parents. She may have been kicked out of her home by a husband who hated her or found someone to take her place. There were all kinds of ways a woman might end up in this position there were very few ways that she could earn money, and chief among them was prostitution. Somehow this woman learned that Jesus, the popular rabbi, the one who cared about the least, the last, and the lost, was dining at Simon's house. I suppose they had something like first century Twitter, crashing Simon's party right after synagogue today. So she went, and she took an alabaster jar of perfume. That tells us something as well. An alabaster jar of perfume, or of ointment, really, don't think of our perfume, think of something like an ointment, would be very costly. That means that she was either successful in her profession, or she had inherited this treasure from deceased parents. It's impossible to overstate how unwelcome this woman would have been in Simon's home. She was a contagion. She was a typhoid Mary of religious uncleanness. Somehow she managed to get a place behind Jesus. Now remember, he was reclining on this low settee with his feet alongside, not under the table. And she began to weep hysterically. And I'm sure everyone around thought, this is awfully awkward. What do you do? She's crying. Do you say something? Do you not say anything? And as she wept uncontrollably, her tears fell on Jesus' feet oblivious to social custom. She knelt at his feet, let down her hair, something that no respectable Jewish woman would ever do. One of the most famous wives of a high priest and mother to seven high priests, unheard of, mother of seven high priests, attributed her success to the fact that only the rafters of her house had ever seen her hair let down. Her husband had never seen her hair let down. And in public, no woman would do this. Green writes that letting her hair down in this setting would have been on a par with appearing topless in public in our society. And then she started to dry Jesus' feet with her hair. 
I mean, this is totally outrageous. To anyone at the table, it must have appeared that she was massaging his feet, which in that culture was something that female slaves did for their masters and that prostitutes did for their customers. Her behavior was totally outrageous. Everyone at the table was shocked and offended. And Jesus sat there seemingly oblivious. But the truth is, he saw what everyone else saw, but he saw even more. He saw beyond this woman's outlandish behavior and right into her heart. He knew she was trying to show him in what was admittedly a socially inept, bumbling way, respect, admiration, even trust. And that tells us something about Jesus and about God. You don't have to have all the religious customs right to be all right with him. You don't have to know all the right words or pass a test on proper Christian behavior before he'll accept you. You just have to have a heart for him. That is, you have to trust him. Well, you can imagine what people were thinking. But you don't really have to because Luke tells us, Simon, verse 39, said to himself, if this man were a prophet... You know, I thought he was a prophet. I invited him here. But man, if he were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. You can just hear him go, oh, you can. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, a sinner. But of course, Jesus already knew that. And he knew something that Simon didn't know. That Simon himself was a sinner. And he knew something that we need to know. That God loves sinners. Down and out sinners, notorious sinners, respectable sinners, broken sinners, any sinners. St. Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners are his business. That's why he came. He loves them. Do you love them? Just as an interesting aside, so far in this gospel, everyone who talks to himself, as Simon does in verse 39, has misunderstood Jesus and even opposed God's work. Well, we all talk to ourselves. That's what we do when we think. But just imagine how different Simon's attitude towards this woman and towards Jesus might have been had he paused for a moment to talk and listen to God. If you'd let God into this conversation that was going on in his head. You know, one of the delightful characteristics of men and women who are advanced in the spiritual life is that they can converse with others and at the same time hold a conversation with God. Now look at verse 40. Jesus answered him. Now, stop there for a moment. Simon hadn't said anything out loud. And yet Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Now, I like that about Simon. Uh, sometimes when Jesus answers our thoughts, we put our hands over our ears and whistle Yankee Doodle because we're afraid of what he wants to say to us. But not Simon. Tell me, teacher. Verse 41. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he canceled the debt of both. Now, let's pause again for a moment. In Jewish thought, sin was conceived as a debt owed to God. See, in the Old Testament and New Testament, see it everywhere. And every single sin deepened that debt. Forgive us our debts, Jesus taught us to pray, as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness was seen as the cancellation of a debt. Simon would have quickly grasped that this little story Jesus is telling is about forgiveness, which, by the way, happens to be one of the major themes in the Gospel of Luke. Luke mentions forgiveness 16 times, far more than any of the other Gospels. Notice that in Jesus' parable, neither debtor had the wherewithal to repay the debt. One may have had more than the other, but both were still debtors, and neither one of them could do anything to change that. That idea is consistent with biblical teaching about our sins and God's forgiveness. Sins we have a plenty, but we've maxed out our line of credit on the mercy of God, and we have nothing with which to make even a single payment. Unless God forgives our debt of his own free will, we have no hope. Now back to verse 42. In his story, Jesus says, but this man canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, I'm pretty sure by this time, Simon knew he was being set up. He knew where Jesus was going, I think. Yet he replied with honesty, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You know, I think Jesus liked this guy. I think he saw what Simon could be. And he wanted to help him get there. You know what? He looks at us and he sees what we could be and will be and wants to help us get there. Jesus knew that Simon was operating from this idea that God demands repayment for our sins in the currency of religious rituals, charitable giving, the practice of spiritual disciplines. And he wanted to open his eyes to the God who is our Father in heaven, not our accountant in the skies. But it was difficult for Simon to grasp. Partly because he'd been raised this way. This had been his thinking forever. And partly because he assumed that he did have the wherewithal to pay God back. Now, the prostitute was another matter altogether. She'd amassed an enormous debt to God and had defaulted on that debt. But Simon had kept his debt small, had made regular payments in the form of religious rituals and good deeds, and had not even accrued any interest as far as he knew. Jesus knew that until Simon could see how big his debt really was, he was just going to go along feeling smugly self-righteous. Lee Eccliffe's wife needed to fly to Dallas to help her sister move. So he did what I do. He went on to Travelocity.com and bought a ticket for her. And, you know, it was a snap. He picked the time. He checked one. If you have the money, it's a snap. You know, he picked the time. He checked one passenger, checked one way, even selected a seat. He then checked that he understood the ticket was non-refundable and non-transferable and that his credit card would be charged. He clicked on, yes, I'm sure this will complete my transaction. As soon as he had done that, do you know the feeling? You, you know, you just feel your stomach drop. He noticed the ticket was in his name, not his wife's. And he panicked. He didn't want to fly to Dallas. And he sure didn't want to pay money for a ticket he wasn't going to use. 
So with his heart pounding, he called American Airlines and was told there was nothing they could do. And he was sick. But the, the American Airlines rep said, hey, you can try calling Travelocity and see if they'll do anything for you. So he did that and heard a voice saying, due to the large volume of calls, you will have to wait. And he was put on hold. And he waited and he waited. And with each passing minute, his fear and his frustration grew. After 10 minutes of listening to that music, you know, some guy named Jacob comes on the line. Jacob, he said, I made a terrible mistake and I'm hoping you can help me. And he explained what he'd done. And Jacob said, no problem. I'll delete your transaction and you can go online and redo your reservation. He said, really? Just like that? I mean, no penalty or anything? And Jacob said, no problem. And Eckhoff, just he just gushed. It's like, Jacob, you're a gift from God. You made my day. He later said if Jacob had been there, he would have hugged him. Probably would have kissed him. Here's the point. If your debt is great enough and you know it, having it forgiven bonds you to the person who forgave you. The woman in this story had that experience. Because she had been forgiven much, verse 47, she loved much. The Greek could be translated, her many sins have been forgiven, hati in Greek, hence she loved much. But Simon hasn't yet felt the full weight of his debt. Didn't even know he was in debt. And so his experience of salvation was limited because as we saw earlier in this study, the knowledge of salvation comes through the forgiveness of sins. So if I feel I don't have anything to be forgiven of, my knowledge of salvation will always be extremely limited. Simon had taken the superiority over the woman who had come into his home for granted. Jesus drew back the curtain a little and let him see her and himself in a different light. Verse 44, Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Now don't skip past that question. It's really important. The fact is, Simon had not seen that woman at all. He saw only the image that his jaundiced eye had superimposed on her. He could not see what Jesus saw, that this woman was not what she'd once been. She'd been changed, and she bore the mark of that change, which was, and always is, love. Still verse 44. I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss on the cheek or on both cheeks, the standard greeting between men in that culture. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Simon thought he was superior to the woman, and as far as society was concerned, he was, and vastly so. But the truth is, she was so far beyond him that he could barely see her. He didn't see her. He only saw the ghost of what she had been. Now look at verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. I wish you could have been sitting in that room right at that moment. You would have heard a collective gasp from people. Who does this guy think he is to forgive sins? And of course, that is exactly the right question to ask. Who does this guy think he is? It was the right question to ask, but they weren't ready for the right answer to be given. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had forgiven someone's sins. 
He'd done it before and he got the same reaction. The first time, the Pharisees and the teachers of all, this is in chapter 5, began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow? And if you read this in Greek, the way that's written makes this fellow seem, um, it's condescending. It's negative. Who does this guy think he is that speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is this who forgives sins? This is the only one who can pay the debt our sins have accrued. We have nothing in the bank. He owns the bank. This is the one the angel promised would save his people from their sins. He would not do that by making them more religious or more socially acceptable. He would do that by making them his own. Jesus told the woman, verse 49, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. By the way, you could spend a good time in meditation on that last three words. Go in peace. I don't think we understand that very well. She had trusted in Jesus. Trusted that he would understand, that he would accept her. We always talk about accepting Jesus. Wow, that's not really so biblical. But he would accept her. That he would make things right. It wasn't her boldness that saved her, though faith can make a person bold. It wasn't her propriety. She didn't have any. It wasn't her religious practices. It was her faith in Jesus that changed everything. Now, in closing, I want to ask you a pointed question. Have you felt the weight of your sins? Or have you managed, as all of us try, to keep that weight off your soul by the props of religion, distraction, and custom? Sooner or later, religion, distraction, and custom rot away. And you feel the weight of sin crushing your soul. Perhaps you've already felt that weight. If so, have you come to Jesus? You don't need to be afraid to come to him. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. This story is one of many in the gospel, and there are many more in this room, that prove Jesus meant what he said. As we sang last week, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. When Anne Graham Lotz was just 17 years old, she was driving too fast, and she ran into the neighbor's car. They lived up on the hill, and the neighbor lived down on the hill. She ran into her neighbor's car, and she was afraid to tell her dad. So she stayed away from home for hours, and when she came home, she tried to sneak to her room without being seen. But there her dad was, Billy Graham, standing in the kitchen. She looked at him, standing there and him there, for what seemed like an eternity. And then she ran to him, put her arms around his neck, and crying, blurted out the whole story. When she was done, he said four things to her. First, I knew all along about your wreck. 
Mrs. Pickering came straight up the mountain and told me, and I was just waiting for you to come home and tell me yourself. Second, I love you. Third, we can fix the car. And fourth, you're going to be a better driver because of this experience. Looking back on that, Anne says, sooner or later, all of us are involved in some kind of wreck. It may be your own fault or someone else's. And she's right. We're not only involved in wrecks, we are wrecks. But when we come to Jesus, he doesn't turn us away. He says, I know all about your wreck, and I've just been waiting for you to come and tell me yourself. I love you. We can fix this, and you're going to be better because of this. Now, I'm talking to you who've felt the weight of your sins and been afraid to do anything about it. Come to Jesus. Come right now. Let's pray. God, I pray for the terrible gift of feeling the weight of our sins. We've tried to avoid that with all our might to justify ourselves, to distract ourselves. Don't let us succeed. But Lord, if you show us our sins, show us your love and your welcoming arms. In Jesus' name, amen.